have you reached a point where you've been able to forgive yourself? It feels like by having to relive all this stuff so often, it's it's just cutting that wound open over and over again, almost like self-flagellating. That's a really interesting question. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. Yep, Car Con Carne, uh, James Van Ostel, that's me. And sitting shotgun this week, Christian Piccolini. Hi, James. We're at Lawrence's, Lawrence's Fishery. We are. And I guess this is Southside. It's like 14th and Canal, something like that. This is like a Chicago institution. <laughs> I mean, for real. This has been here forever in various forms since like the 1950s. Yeah, I think it, it was around the same time that they built the expressway that's right next to it. I, I, I remember coming here as a kid. It looks looks and feels very different now. You know what it looks and feels like now? When you go to Great America and you buy food at Great America, there's you know, like the ramp you go up and you wait in the line. This looks like a Great America dining experience. It looks like a large white castle now. looks very theme park. The food is awesome. It is all fried seafood. It's beautiful. And we'll break that open. But the reason why you're here, uh, one, you know, I enjoy you to no end, uh, Christian Piccolini, Author of Romantic Violence, it is an autobiography. It is a harrowing true-life tale of you growing up in the Blue Island area, uh, suburb of Chicago, growing up and evolving or devolving into skinhead, a full-on racist, a, a leader, a figurehead in that movement. But more importantly, it's also how you, the book deals with how you came out of it and you ended up on the other side. You have a not-for-profit that you help run called Life After Hate. That's correct. So I want to get into all of this. And I know it seems like you're on this endless book tour, speaking tour, where you're telling the story. But for someone who hasn't picked up romantic violence, for someone whose curiosity is already piqued, how did you, a kid, just a kid, growing up in a Chicago suburb, end up a skinhead and following this movement? You know, I think what most people don't know uh, is that the American neo-Nazi skinhead movement was actually born on the south side of Chicago in, a, in an alley in Blue Island right across the alley from where I grew up. Uh, and I was a skinhead from the time I was 14 years old until I was roughly 22, and those years I think were 87 to 95. Um, and, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't raised racist. My parents were immigrants from Italy who came to this country in the mid-60s, and they were often the victims of prejudice. So I wasn't, you know, raised in a household where, uh, you know, I was taught that I was better than anybody else or worse than anybody else. You know, they knew the struggles of coming here and trying to make it, so I was always just taught to work hard. And because of that, my parents worked really, really hard, and they were gone most of the time. Uh, and I found my way on the streets. And when I was 14 years old, actually 13 and a half, I met a guy. Uh, I was standing in an alley smoking a joint and kind of like a scene out of a movie, this 69 Firebird roars down the alley and it screeches to a halt two feet from me. Uh, and this guy with a shaved head and boots comes out of the car and he makes a beeline towards me and he grabs a joint out of my mouth and he crushes it with his boot. And he says, don't you know that that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile? I was 14, you know, I didn't even, the only communists I knew were Drago and, and my favorite Rocky movie, and, <laughs> and you know, I don't think I'd ever met a Jewish person by that age, and, and I hardly knew what the word docile meant, but, you know, I was really struck with this guy's charisma, and this was 87, so nobody really knew what a skinhead was, I didn't know what a skinhead was at that point, um, but suddenly there was this adult, because he was older than me, he was like 26, who uh, was unlike the other adults in my life, he wasn't telling me, don't 
smoke pot because it's stupid or because you're stupid, like my dad would say, he was showing sincere concern for me. At least that was my perception. And uh, at 14 years old, I became one of America's first neo-Nazi skinheads and and uh, spent that uh, time, for the next seven years, I spent that time as, as, a, as a hater. It's so hard, I think, for people on the outside to understand how this, how someone could be sucked in by this, but it really was, it was timing, wasn't it? It was, it was the the location you were in, the culture you were, yeah. I mean, you're in a white community. Right. And here's the right guy saying all these things. It's, you were impressionable. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a perfect storm, I think. You know, I was 14, so I was trying to, to understand what my own identity was and, and breaking away from my parents' influence. So I was really susceptible because I was ambitious. I was searching to do something that mattered. Uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in was was pretty ethnically Italian. A lot of the people from the same villages my parents came from moved to that area. And, uh, you know, my phone's ringing. Sorry. Sorry. Want me to take it? No. All right. So, um, you know, the town that, we, that I grew up in was pretty ethnically Italian. Most of uh, the same people from the villages that my parents uh, came from moved to this area. But there was also, you know, a change in that kind of mix of nationality. There were uh, black people who were starting to move into the neighborhood and, and Latinos who were starting to move in. So it was a, a kind of a confusing time for the people who stuck together. And, uh, you know, and then I met this guy and my whole world changed. I, but I got to tell you, I wasn't drawn in by the politics at first because that wasn't something I was used to. I was drawn in by the music. The music was really powerful, uh, and it spoke to me, and it you know it talked about the things that were on my mind, and it was aggressive, and it was kind of like the punk rock I was listening to, but it just had something more important to say in my mind at that time. And th- this is something as you go out and as you do interviews, as you speak about this book, this is a theme that you keep coming back to: that the power of music, the influence, the ability for music to to shape someone. Yeah, music is powerful. I mean, it's influencing to you know kids of any race, gender, whatever. I mean, music is just a powerful influencing tool. And, um, you know, I think the skinheads in England figured that out uh, pretty early on when they started making music that spoke to, uh, you know, unemployment and being on the dole and their parents being out of work. And Americans were a little bit late to, to that party. But, you know, in 87, uh, the first American white power skinhead band started, and they were started specifically to target and to recruit these young people. It was a, it was a propaganda tool for them. Was, was there like a, a common under besides you know being against different races and beliefs? I guess was there a bigger goal like we want full blown civil war? Was there? We operated under this this mantra that that was called the 14 words, and those 14 words were, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. That was our mission statement. Which suggests, by any means necessary, violence. That was, yeah, that was implied. That was kind of the unwritten thing. And, you know, it was by any means necessary. Our, they tried to spin it, we tried to spin it as a white pride revolution. Be proud of your race, there's nothing wrong with that. But in reality, that was just the gateway drug to, to get the mainstream hooked on it. It was very white supremacist, it was very violent, it was very anti-black, anti-Semitic, uh, and that basically anti-anything that, was, that wasn't white, and even anti-white to some people uh, who were, you know, liberals or were race traitors that we, you know, would call them back then. And race was, traitors. Yeah. That's that's kind of what they call me now. I was going to say, I mean, since you came out on the other side, 
I mean, that that hasn't sat well with racists. No, no, it hasn't. I mean, I spent you know the last twenty years working against what I helped build. So I've I've been in the spotlight quite a bit over those last twenty years. But when my book came out, I think people were scared that it was going to be a tell-all book about the movement, where in fact it's not. It's just a tell-all book about me. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it really is just a cautionary tale. I wrote it so that kid, young people who were experiencing the same kind of confusing thoughts that I was going through, or maybe parents of kids, could read it and understand why you know a 14 year old kid from a decent family with a you know good upbringing could go down that evil of a path maybe even some of the same reasons why young girls from middle america are flying to syria to join isis now you mentioned violence what was going on was it like gang warfare were you guys beating up on people yeah, I mean, it was everything. I mean, we would fight the, you know, the ethnic gangs uh, in the area, like the Latin kings and folks and things like that, vice lords. But we would also fight against white gangs, uh, which started to spring up to counter us. So there were these anti-racist skinheads called Sharp, or Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, that uh, we would often fight with. So we spent a lot of time fighting other white people. And here's another, I, I've never understood how gang fights work. Like, what is the goal there? Just just beating the crap out of someone to to plant your flag and say no, I think what it, we stand for is better? No, it's about insecurity. It's about, you know, machismo and and, and testosterone mostly and it's fueled by alcohol. I can't remember a fight that I've been in where, you know, it didn't start out with drinking some beer or some booze first. And, you know, back then, you know, what I can only speak for my group, right? And myself, uh, I don't know about the anti-racists. They were probably fighting a much more uh, important battle than, than we were because they were doing it for the right reasons. But we would just indiscriminately fight people that we didn't like if people looked at us wrong. Like you'd go into a fast food place and say, yeah, here we go. Well, that actually happened one time. So one of, one of the things I talked about in my book, which was a pretty pivotal moment for me, was uh, when I was, I think, 19 years old, some friends and I were, of course, drinking, and it was late, and we walked into a McDonald's after midnight, and there were some black teenagers in line in front of us. And uh, I loudly proclaimed that it was my McDonald's and that they weren't welcome there. So they ran out. And uh, As you say those words. Yeah. How do you feel saying that? It's really uncomfortable for me to say that. and I'm, People can't see me right now, but I'm kind of like fidgeting a little bit. Yeah, I, just to I'm uncomfortable some, hearing it. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, looking back now, it was one of those moments that I wish I could take back, but I'm, uh, I'm almost, uh, I hate to say happy that it happened because it was a changing moment for me. So we chased after these kids, and one of them pulled a gun out and opened fire on us and shot a couple shots at us until his gun jammed. And when we caught him, we beat him to an inch of his life. And uh, through his blood-covered face, you know, his eyes opened. And for one of the first times, I made an empathic connection with somebody who was a victim of my violence. I thought for a second, this could be my brother, or it could be my dad, or my mom, or somebody that I care about. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just the right stage. Um, but, you know, I made a connection with that person. And that was like one of the first little cracks that started to happen, uh, you know, around this shell that had formed around my heart. And, you know, eventually the, the cracks got larger and larger as I faced more, um, you know, rational thought and logical thought. I feel weird doing this, but we have food in here. Can we talk about this stuff over fried, fried seafood? I, I think we can talk about anything over fried seafood. Yeah, okay. So... 
you got the shrimp, which I think is probably like the must at this place, right? Yeah, it's, it's definitely. I've been coming here for 25 years. Uh, in fact, since I was in the movement, um, the first person to take me here to Lawrence's was my assistant when I was driving a construction truck on the Kennedy when they were doing the, the Kennedy resurfacing project. And his name was Rico. He was a Latino guy. He was, he was a friend of mine, even while I was in the movement during that time. And uh, I haven't spoken to him in 24 years or so, but I always, every time I come to Lawrence's, I remember Rico and, and the awesome shrimp he introduced me to. I got fries. There's enough to split. All right, cool. Um, now, you got the shrimp. I, I like to say I courageously went with the frog legs. Well, we had to do some carne, right? Yeah. I, Otherwise, it would just be car con camarones. Which, which has a certain vibe. I have not tried a frog leg since probably like 1990, 1991. When I worked at Dick's Last Resort. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, well, not so much. Were but you rude to people? I, I was, and I, I got to tell you, that was the most soul-sucking thing in the world. <laughs> like, that idea of getting, like going to work and having to be a jerk to people. It was the worst. Yeah. Um, you want to try a frog lick? Uh, I'm, I may. That means no. Yeah. That pretty much means no. All right. So but you're welcome to any shrimp you'd like. See, the, the magic at Lawrence's is the hot sauce. The hot sauce, I could drink it. Mm-hmm. It's sweet, and it's slightly hot. Uh, and it's just got like this kind of tomato vinegary base. Oh yeah, it's it. awesome! It is so good. You can actually buy bottles of it, and I, I own some. So, how are those frog legs? They have bones in them. Mm-hmm. So it's just like eating a chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't swallow oh. a bone, James. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's I'm, not pretty. I'm gonna say that you're going thumbs down on the frog legs so far. I hate to say this. Tastes like chicken. It really does. Shrimp tastes like shrimp. Here, eat one of these shrimp. All right. This is dynamite. Yeah, the sauce is good, isn't it? Well, I guess the frog leg's pretty darn yummy. And the batter is great. I don't know if they use, like, a cornmeal or something mm-hmm. like that. I think it's uh, it's not just, like, you know, regular breading. It's some sort of a mixture because it's different. Oh, the shrimp's great. Yeah, isn't it good? Mm. They're sweet. Mm-hmm. And they're jumbo. They're about the size of a, I don't know, you could probably find one in here that's about this. Oh, this is great. Yeah. This is such a good call. I truly haven't been here since I was a small child. I think my grandparents took me here when I was like eight. <laughs> Neighborhood's changed a little bit. A little bit. Very industrial. Was, you know, kind of the heart of, I guess this is like the edge of Chinatown and, Very much and Bridgeport, right? Mm-hmm. So now, This is a great place for pre or post White Sox. Yeah. Absolutely. So now a lot of these old warehouses that are sitting around here that used to be industrial are now lofts and offices and things like that. This sauce is ridiculous. Help yourself to oh my God. more shrimp. I'm telling you, you can have a frog leg. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> the bones are a little creepy, but it is tasty. See, here's my theory. If it tastes like chicken, just eat chicken. What are the benefits of, you know frog legs. The bones are a little tough to navigate around. Yeah. But I had to know. You, you you led me to adventure tonight. Is this your first uh, meatless expedition for Carcon Carne? It has to be. So, alright, let's go back to romantic violence and your history here. Mm-hmm. You reach a point where you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. What am I doing here? Yeah. How do you go through the process of getting out? You know, it was kind of another perfect storm that happened for me. So I spent 
you know, seven years as part of this movement. I was one of the early founders and was a member of the, the first neo-Nazi skinhead gang in America. So as you can imagine, being part of something that was so high profile is kind of difficult to get out of. Yeah. Um, very quickly, the people who recruited me, soon after I was recruited, uh, the, a lot of the folks were arrested for a series of violent hate crimes uh, and went to prison. Wow. Uh, one of them... Um, was on the 49th anniversary of Kristallnacht, um, which is the anniversary where um, stormtroopers in Germany desecrated Jewish stores, mm-hmm. started their, their roundup. Well, they did the same thing in Chicago. On the 49th anniversary, they went around Chicago and they you know, I remember this. busted uh, Jewish-owned store windows, painted swastikas in synagogues, and beat some people up. And uh, soon after, they uh, there was a, a female member of the skinhead uh, gang that had been rumored to have been seen with black guy so uh, several of the skinheads including the guy who recruited me went to her apartment and pistol whipped her uh, and painted a swastika on the wall with her blood and were arrested for Jesus. that yeah so you know here i was 15 going on 16 and suddenly everybody who was above me in this organization was sent to prison or took off to run from the cops or grew their hair out and disassociated and here i was left you know at 16 years old kind of you know as the de facto leader of this infamous skinhead organization. How crazy. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really, it was really a, a, you know, an interesting time. I mean, for me, it was the power that went al- uh, along with that was really intoxicating for me. You know, 16 years old, I was leading, oh, I'm sure. you know, 40 people and, and, and uh, you know, the most infamous <laughs> gang of skinheads in the country. And um, the power went to my head. It really, you know, it was very intoxicating, and that kept me in, I think, more than the ideology did, because for seven years, I had these moments of clarity. I had these moments of doubt, and I always had this confusion about my ideology, because it wasn't my foundation. It wasn't how I was built. Right. It was something that I learned. And um, I always had these questions, and finally, at the end of seven years, several catalysts happened. So it started with that fight at the McDonald's, uh, but at 19 years old, I had my first child, and uh, I just remember holding, you know, my son for in my arms for the first time, and thinking that I'd never felt that way. I was suddenly reconnecting with my own innocence that I lost at 14 years old. It kind of yeah, you never really back. had a chance to. I never had a chance to grow up because at 14 I was doing things that you know would terrify most adults. Yeah. So that was a major turning point, and then uh, when I finally got out in 1995. Um, you know, because partly because I was a selfish leader and I hadn't really groomed an heir apparent, at least locally, it was easy for me to leave. There was a, there were a lot of unhappy people, you know. Let's just say that. But uh, it, it, you know, it wasn't life threatening. Regionally and nationally was a different story, and also internationally because by that time I'd become a pretty international figure uh, with the band that I'd started. I'd started uh, a band in 1990 called White American Youth, which was one of America's Man. first white power bands, and then changed the name of the band to Final Solution, and was Oof. the first band to travel to Germany to outside of the U.S. So um, again, speaking about that intoxicating power, it's like, wait, I'm getting flown to Germany. Yeah, I was you know 18 years old, and I was playing in front of 4,000 skinheads from you know every country in Europe, and uh, it, it was a pretty powerful thing. Sure. But like I said, you know, I was still having these doubts. So when these catalysts started to happen, and after I left the movement, I went through this depression. Um, I realized that the reason I wasn't, you know. I was still struggling. I was still unemployed. I lost my wife and my children. I, my, you know, I lost my livelihood. The reason 
that even though my heart changed, I wasn't feeling better is because I wasn't talking about what I had gone through. And then in 99, I got a job um, with IBM of all the places, you know, like I, but how does that work? I don't know. I lied on my resume and I got the job. Uh, it was a temp job. At okay. First. And out of the millions of places, literally millions of places that IBM could have placed me, they put me back in my old high school for a computer rollout program. The same, oh high, the same high school that I'd been kicked out of twice and had a restraining order against me. Wow. So, yeah. I was terrified. There are so many aspects of this story. Wow. Okay. So I was terrified. And I don't know if it was fate or destiny or what that landed me there. But on that first day, you know, as I'm terrified that somebody's going to point me out and get me fired, who did I see but the same black security guard I'd gotten in a fist fight with that I'd gotten kicked out for. So I didn't know what to do. I was frozen. Um, but I decided, you know, I mustered the courage and I, I decided to run after him. And I found him in the parking lot. And when I tapped him on the shoulder, you know, his normally jolly smile uh, kind of turned into a scowl when he recognized who I was. Oh, sure. And uh, all I could say, all I could think to say was, I'm sorry. And that's it. And, I, you know, and, and we started talking. And eventually, you know, he shook my hand and it felt like the heavens opened up and kind of surrounded us with this redemptive light. And we both started crying. Really? And wow. uh, he made me promise that I was going to tell my story to people. Because it wasn't enough that I'd gotten out. He said I had to use my knowledge to educate other people. And, uh, and that's kind of started the process of me writing the book and, and, and beginning to talk about what I'd been through as kind of a, a, you know, a lesson for other people who might be facing that same type of thing. It's been uh, 20 years now. And it feels like, I mean, you're in this loop. It feels like this is, this is your life moving forward. Yeah. And just this, this is all you talk about I mean publicly you have the not-for-profit it feels like this is your career is it's kind help, of, helping people out of this yeah you know it's it's kind of I see it as my calling now you know I've tried lots of different things in my life and while I've enjoyed some of them and I've certainly learned a lot from you know television and music and and uh, and you know the art businesses that I've been involved in uh, nothing is as, has been as satisfying as trying to um, kind of clean up the mess that I made. Uh, it's, it's something that I've got to do. It's something that you know, I'm responsible for, and it's the right thing to do. So I try to speak out against racism and try to educate people as much as possible. Uh, but through my nonprofit life after hate, I'm also actively pulling people out of hate groups. I find them. They reach out to me. I reach out to them. Sometimes family members reach out to me, and, and my goal is to, uh, is to try and, and change their hate it's like a cult rescue. I mean, that's that's what yeah. Some people call it deprogramming. I don't yeah. really see it that way because I'm just I'm reprogramming because people are born with empathy and with compassion. I'm just trying to connect people with, you know, those same natural instincts that they had when they were born. Because somewhere down the road, they got lost. Something from their life is missing. You know, people don't turn to hate because their life is great. I think that right. they turn to late turn to hate because something's missing. Happy people don't plant bombs. Happy people don't behead people or paint swastikas on synagogues. You know, only people who have something missing in their life do that. And it could be anything. It could be a socioeconomic thing. It could be a loss of a family member. It could be abuse. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs, whatever. You know, my job is to really go in and try and find out what those things are so that I can help people get those things back and realize that they don't need hate in their life to make them. Because people hate other people because they really hate themselves. They're just projecting. I, I agree with that. So... This hot sauce does have a cumulative effect, just so you know. Yeah, it does get hot. Holy crap. But boy, is it good. It is so good. Frog legs are a little... I think 
frog legs are tricky to eat, probably more so in a car. They kind of look like wings. Uh-huh. But they're from a frog. Mm-hmm. This hot sauce makes everything. I mean, I could have breaded and deep-fried yeah. bolts, and it'd be fine. <laughs> so, looking at the world today, it seems like... Oh, another shrimp, maybe. Give me a second. It seems like we're in kind of a scary spot. We are absolutely in a scary and spot. And it's a leading question, but I think it's a fair one to ask you. Is Donald Trump a racist? Should we be concerned about Donald Trump? I'll answer your second question first. Uh, we should absolutely be concerned about what Donald Trump is saying and the people who are listening. Um, you know, is Donald Trump a racist? I don't know. Are the things he's saying racist? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if he's doing it to, to pander and try and get votes or if he's if he you know genuinely believes the things he says. And with him, you never know. But I can tell you that we're in a climate right now politically in this country and even overseas where hateful rhetoric is starting to become kind of the norm, uh, where we're you know marginalizing refugees and our own American citizens who happen to be Muslim or black. Um, and it's a scary time because it really... Uh, you know, history does repeat itself, and it, and it seems to be repeating itself right now. There are, there are so many similarities to kind of the the early Hitler speeches where he really appealed to the average German who had been coming out of a depression uh, and had been coming out of World War One, where their country was devastated. So there was this socioeconomic and, and kind of geopolitical thing that was going on that people were desperate. So they were right. willing to vote and go and put their, you know, vote behind the person who was the most drastic because they needed drastic change. Donald Trump isn't that person for America. He's he is playing on the fears and playing on the ignorance of people to be divisive uh, and uh, it's the absolute opposite of what our country needs and, and the opposite of what the world needs right now. It's the most important job in the world. Do you think other countries look at America and say, "What are you guys doing?" I think they think we're nuts. <laughs> yeah. I think that I was in Mar Okay, so here's an interesting story. I was in Marrakesh couple weeks ago in Morocco. And I North saw the Africa. pictures online. It looked awesome. And it was a great time and a great trip. And, uh, you know, I was walking. I did a lot of walking when I was there. I actually came back losing eight, six pounds, which was crazy for a vacation. That's but. it. I'm going to Marrakesh. <laughs> the food was great. But anyway, so I was walking down the street and these four young kids surrounded me. Was, Marrakesh is kind of like all these little side streets yeah. and stuff. These four young uh, Moroccan kids surrounded me, and they were hassling me, and they were starting to ask me for money, and not just in a friendly way, like, you know, hey, American, give me money, uh, or give me money. They didn't know I was American at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to pull out money, even though, I, you know, they, they're poor and they need it. I, I knew if I pulled out my money, I'd get rolled and yep. take all of it. So, uh, you know, I kind of stood my ground and smiled and stuck out my hand and tried to be friendly with them. And by the end of the day, they said, oh, you're an American. You guys aren't scared of anything. You guys are cowboys. And I think that that's really what the rest of the world thinks. And they let me go, by the way. I was able to get out of that alley without getting, you know, rolled by, by three dudes. But um, I think that that's what the rest of the world thinks of us, is that we're just these cowboys. Like shoot first, ask questions later? Yeah, I mean, their image of us is, you know, old westerns and gangster movies and, and you know, Scorsese movies and things like that. And, you know, just like to a lot of Americans, TV and film can be reality sometimes. I think to people who are so detached from us as a country, it's absolute reality for them. And uh, I think they think we're nuts. And I think we think, I think we're nuts sometimes too, so interesting talking about how this has become your life's calling recounting these events have you 
it's because you have to recount all these things that you did and said and acted on. Have you reached a point where you've been able to forgive yourself? It feels like by having to relive all this stuff so often, it, it's it's just cutting that wound open over and over again, almost like self-flagellating. That's a really interesting question. And somebody asked me that after a talk several years ago, if I had forgiven myself. And I, it, it was the first time I'd gotten that question and the first time I'd thought about it. And uh, I couldn't answer him because at that point, I, I hadn't. I, w- I would have been dishonest if I would have said yes. But it really got me thinking. Um, I think I started the forgiveness process with myself when I started talking about the things that I had done. Um, and I think at this point, I, you know, I, I've had to forgive myself. I found a way to forgive myself because I want to, I want to continue to do the work that I do. And I want it to come from a sincere and genuine place. And it was killing me. Um, if other people have forgiven me, that's completely up to them. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I, I believe I have forgiven myself. Have you run into people from the past, like in your travels or just... You know, funny enough, not very much. Uh, at least I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen some people from my past who were on the other side back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for the most part, they embrace me now. I call a lot of them friends. And, and, and you know, they really respect my, my transformation and the work that I'm doing. Um, but luckily for me, I, you know, I haven't really come across physically and in person anybody who I've known from my past hate mail and emails are a different story however that's tough I get that stuff but you know what it validates what I do there's a part of this story that I think resonates with people in that you made some bad choices as a kid some really bad choices a lot of them some catastrophically bad choices that led you down a horrible path I mean there's an aspect to reading this story and hearing you tell a story of you know there but for the grace of God like we've all done things we regret that have you know tripled quadrupled snowballed into something awful mm-hmm. your example is extreme but I, I think that's what interests people in hearing your story and how you came out on the other side is well crap he he's, he could be any of us yeah as a kid I mean it, it's so hard to to think about what the choices a kid makes and the ability to reason through things. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't that different than other kids. I was bullied. I was, I've had low self-esteem and low self-confidence. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a part of something. I craved structure, wanted to impress my friends, and all of that played into me joining the movement. But that's, you know, those aren't things that are rare to me. I think every yeah. teenager goes through those kind of oh, identity yeah. crises. And, and that's why I think the story is so important because, uh, you know, Kids could potentially go down the same road that I did if they're not careful and if the people who really care about them aren't careful. But on the other side, coming out, um, you know, it was compassion from the people that I least deserved it from uh, that changed me. You know, I, when I least deserved it, I got I received empathy from people, um, you know, for no reason other than they were being human beings to somebody who needed help. Now, at first, I didn't accept it because, I, you know, they were my enemies, but... Eventually uh, and unwittingly, I think it, it seeped into those cracks that started to, to appear. And uh, if it weren't for them, uh, I may, you know, it was my first time I was able to humanize other people, and, and I appreciate that very much. Wow. My nose is completely running, by the way. Good. Uh, so I've mentioned you and your book and the interviews I've done with you to my son, who's 14 years old. He's interested in the story mm-hmm. because, you know, same age, you know, he's, you know, he sees things around him. His question to me was, can I read Mr. Picciolini's book? Mm-hmm. 
and I'd ask that of you. Can my son, should my son read? Is it too too much for a middle school kid to read? Absolutely not. I mean, it, the language in it is tough, and the, the scenes in it are tough. But they're, you know, it's language and, 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 and things that I think young people are used to. Um, it's important for young people to read it because I was 14 when I got involved. Had I read something like that or had somebody shared their story with me at that age, maybe I would have gone down a different path. Um, but I actually wrote the book specifically in the voice of the person I was at that time. Which so, I find very interesting. Yeah, so chapter by chapter it changes and you see my progression. So when I write about me and you know my 14-year-old self, it's pretty much what I would have said at 14. And when I write about me and my 22-year-old self, that's you know pretty genuine to, to who I was at 22. Uh, and I talk about my confusion. I don't hide it. I don't glorify what I did. Um, but I, you know, I write about it to, to have it serve as a lesson of you know how some kid from the south side of Chicago could get called by Muammar Gaddafi, the you know the the leader of Libya at the time, and try you know to give me a million dollars to to fight the Jews in my country. I mean that kind of stuff happened, and that's insane. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's insane. And it's a good thing I didn't I didn't participate. One, I didn't do it because I was still a proud American at the time, and I, I had no interest in siding with, you know, foreign terrorists. Uh, but also, it ended up become it ended up being a Canadian sting operation, uh, and everybody went to prison. <laughs> so it's a really good thing I turned it wow. down. Yeah, we would. Not... I, I made one good decision at least. Wow, when you like, pull the trigger, the wrong wrong way to say it. When you pushed the book out into the world, mm-hmm. was there a part of you that flinched, thinking? Oh God! Here we go. No, it was the opposite. Actually, there was most of me was so relieved to finally get it out into the world because I felt like even though I talked about it <coughs> to audiences, I still had not let my full truth out. And when I let it go, when it, on that day when when that book uh, hit the shelves, it was like the biggest feeling of relief. It was like a, an elephant had jumped off my back. How how are things today? I mean. We've talked about this before in various interviews, but the spread of hate messaging and language seems like the Internet mm-hmm. just exacerbates things. Yeah, I mean, it works both ways, right? I mean, it's, it's easy for kids to find racist uh, you know, stuff online, but it's also easy to serve counter narratives and educate people, too. Um, it, kind of where everything is right now is pretty scary in my opinion because in the old days you know you could spot a skin at a mile away with a swastika on his forehead and doc martens and you could spot the clan a mile away and and they're not the problem anymore the problem is is that so many of these people now and we actually taught this uh back in the day this concept of leaderless resistance or most people might know it as lone wolf strategy we actually taught people to disassociate themselves with these groups and blend into the mainstream. So what you're seeing now and what I'm seeing now is, uh, you know, groups like sovereign citizen militia groups and patriot groups and, um, and stealing a, stealing yeah, go for it. Yeah. Take it. And, you know, council of conservative citizens and extremist elements of the tea party. That's where these people who are neo-Nazis, they are racist to the core. That's where they're going to try and influence people. And you can see it, you know, in the rhetoric that these groups use, they may not use the N word like we used to, but they're, you know, they're saying things like, you know, refugees and immigrants instead. And it's language that's much more mainstream these days. Yeah. And but it's the same thing. I could write Donald Trump's speeches, you know, in my sleep. I could write. I could talk. You know, I could stand up on a podium and, and run for America on the same platform that they did back in those days, and not flinch because it was the ideology was the same. 
um, you know, it's exclusive. It's not inclusive. Mm-hmm. We need to be more inclusive and not, not separate ourselves because I really think that racism comes from two places. It comes from ignorance and it comes from isolation. And uh, both, both of those things are things that are being, you know, really talked about right now in American politics. And, and we do not need to isol- isolate ourselves and we do not absolutely need to be, you know, we need to educate ourselves. We can't be ignorant because that's where fear and, and hate and violence come from. As you go out and speak and travel and learn more, have you been to the Holocaust Museum? I have. I have. In fact, I don't know where my keys are, in my pocket, but on my key ring, uh, and I've had this for probably close to a decade. Let's see. It's around here somewhere. On my key ring, I have this little... Oh, no, don't tell me it's gone. Oh, here it is. So this little let the record show Christian has a key to every door in Chicago. <laughs> it just it just looks that way. I've got a lot, you know, whatever, but don't make fun of me, James. <laughs> so anyway, on this little on my thing, I've got this little token from the Holocaust Museum that says equality, diversity and justice. And I don't even I forget it's there, but you can see how worn yeah. it is. I always play with it like it always is a reminder to me. It was I've been there several times. It is one of the most poignant uh, places in our country, and if, if Americans haven't been to D.C. to the to the Holocaust Museum, they need to go. It's a, an experience that really changes your life. Even if you know nothing about it or were never involved in any kind of the politics surrounding it, just going there is, is one of the most moving and powerful experiences I think I've ever had. When you were growing up as a racist, were you taught to deny the Holocaust? Was that part of the... Oh, yeah. It was... The, uh, you know, back in those days, the Holocaust was a lie. There was no way that six million Jews could have could have been killed, you know. And we rationalize it as, you know, it's war. People died from starvation and, and stuff like that. I mean, I look back and I'm having a hard time saying it now. Yeah. But uh, absolutely, we denied it uh, because that's what we did. We pointed the finger elsewhere except for at ourselves. Everybody else was to blame except for us. Let's talk about life after hate. Is there a story you can share of just getting someone out or, mm-hmm. or making a connection that really kind of validated your work as a not-for-profit? Yeah, I actually have a pretty recent story. Um, a guy had read my book. This was a 31-year-old guy out of uh, Buffalo, New York. He was a discharged uh, veteran from the military because he was wounded. He was married and had a young daughter. Um, and uh, he hated Muslims, hated them. I mean, as, as much as I hated black people and Jews back in those days, he felt the same way about Muslim people now. In fact, he told me when I met him, uh, that uh, he had seen a Muslim man praying on the ground and uh, the day before, and it took everything in him to not go up to him and kick him in the throat. And um, I sat with him, and we talked for a long time, and we shared stories. And I don't ever, you know, engage people by battling ideologies. I'm not interested in, in changing their political views because sure. that just emboldens them. I try to listen because they'll usually give me the clues on what they need to become mm-hmm. a happier person. So I went out there, and uh, after sitting with this with this guy for the day, uh, who hated Muslims, I suggested that uh, we go to visit the mosque in town and talk to the imam. So we acted, and he was terrified. He didn't want to go. He actually pulled over one time because he wanted to throw up on our way there. But wow. I convinced him to go, and um, he was he didn't you know he hated Muslims. He thought he was walking into the house of the devil, and this was a really Christian guy. So when we got there, uh, you know, I met the imam and and asked him if we could speak for a little while. And he said he could give us five minutes. And I said, okay, we'll take what we can get. 
we ended up being there for two and a half hours, sitting at a table talking to this wonderful man who was the imam of this mosque. Uh, and by the time we were done talking, um, not only you know was this guy who I had brought there in tears and fully uh, apologizing for his thoughts, um, he now goes there with his family. He hasn't converted to, to Islam or anything, but he goes there with his family and his daughter and, and sets up tables for them when they need it. And um, I, you know, I'm happy to say he's he's turned the corner. It's taken a lot of work, and, and he's got a lot of issues to still work through. But just changing his perspective just a little bit. He hated Muslims because he had never met one. Because his idea of what a Muslim was was what the military taught him. Sure. They were the enemy, right? They didn't really distinguish sure. well. You know, some are enemies and some are not. They're like, if they look like that, they're your enemy. That's what you you know you need to be careful of. So when he finally had the opportunity to sit and meet with somebody and understand that, oh, wow, their religion isn't that much different than my, you know, than his Christian religion, you know, all this confusion started to fall away because his ignorance was now replaced by education. And he could no longer make sense of the hate that he had because it was built on a flawed ideology. You said the magic word, education. Education. Truly, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Uh, so for information on Life After Hate, where do people go? People can go to lifeafterhate.org. Uh, I should also say that we're completely donor-funded. Uh, we're a nonprofit, uh, and to continue to do the work that we do, uh, we do that through people's support. And uh, if people want your book, Romantic Violence, they can go to Amazon. They can go to Amazon, ask for it at their bookstore, or they can go to romanticviolence.com and click on the link there. I've said it before. It is one of the most beautifully packaged put together books and it's incredibly well written it's it's a page turner thank you i mean you wrote it so that's it's gripping and moving and it, it's a hell of a work and uh, it's become a defining work for you as a person yeah i mean it's it's important and i'm i'm happy to say too and i'm really honored by this but yale uh is actually teaching my book uh, and New York Institute of Technology is actually teaching my book for some dynamics of violence classes that they're doing, and, and that's, that's fantastic. That means a lot to me. All right. So that aside, you do all these interviews talking about your racist past and being a skinhead. Uh, let's talk about Christian Picciolini. <laughs> when, when Christian Picciolini isn't talking about romantic violence in the, the days of his youth, uh, you love music. I love music. First album you ever bought. That was not a racist album. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that, those came later. First album I ever bought, uh, The Outfield, Play Deep. No, really? Yeah, I think so. It was either that or Duran Duran, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. I don't know. That's was, the one with uh, New Moon on Monday, right? I think so. Shake up the picture, the, li- the lizard mixture. I dance on the it, it was like, so. That was 12. First concert? <laughs> First concert, uh, Naked Ray Gun. Um, Gosh. That was your first concert? Raygun was the first? Yeah, it was like 1984, though. Even cooler. But, I mean, most people have an embarrassing first concert. I mean, Raygun is like... Yeah, it was a good one. My first concert was the Bee Gees. (laughs) My second concert was Monsters of, of Metal. Like a Slayer, Megadeth, and an Anthrax. So Okay, that kicks ass, too. That's pretty good. I just saw Slayer a couple weeks ago at the Riv. I don't know why I thought it was a good idea to not bring earplugs. I'm sitting through Testament and Carcass. I'm like, oh, this isn't bad. Slayer comes on and they up the amps to <laughs> unforeseen, unforeheard levels. It's one of those concerts where you feel the sound yeah. just pushing at you. I was at a concert there one time and I, I, I literally lost my hearing for two weeks after being there. I, think, I don't remember who it was, Bad Religion or somebody, but I was standing up front 
stupidly next to the speakers, and I and I couldn't hear for two weeks. Well, I, I left the show. I went with my friend Rob, and I realized we were shouting at each other as we were walking <laughs> back to the car because we couldn't hear each other. That's good practice in your old age, though. You don't have to get used to that. <laughs> and I knew better. I knew better. It was Slayer. It was Slayer. Yeah, they'll make your ears bleed. But you're also a huge punk rock fan. I love it. I, when I think of you, I think of punk rock. I mean, you've managed bands. You've helped bands' careers. Yeah, ran a label. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember doing the local show at Key 101 and getting yeah. stuff from you. That You know, that's funny because I still have to dig up that old answering machine tape where I have you, and it was probably 1995 or 90, 96, of James Van Osdell, JVO, leaving a message on my answering machine saying he was going to play my punk band's song on Local 101. I always tried to do that. I figured... If a band back in the day, it was much harder for bands to get awareness out there, oh, yeah. let people know. Well, figured, there was no internet, right? I mean, right. how did people discover bands outside of radio? I figured I, I kind of owed it to the bands I played to let them know. I mean, the service that you brought to the city is—it's beyond reproach. I mean, you've helped so thousands and thousands of bands, bands who some are now the, the biggest bands in the world. You helped them out when they needed well, it at first. Well, thank thank you. you for that. Truly my pleasure. And Christian, uh, truly, I, I feel bad every time I get together with you, I talk about the, the, your sordid past. <laughs> but by the same token, I talk about the redemptive path you took and uh, how you're being proactive and helping others. But I, I, we, we never talk about anything other than romantic yeah. violence. Yeah, you know, I don't know that I've ever done an interview where I haven't talked about my life. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it. You want to talk about other stuff? Sure. Yeah, are there, what other books are you reading? I am, uh, what am I reading? I'm reading uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. It's an amazing book. Uh, it's an essay about uh, his story to his son, uh, and it is the most moving, touching, unbelievable book so far. Uh, Superman versus Batman? Do you care? I don't really care, but i got to go uh, with Batman because he's a real person. Superman's real. He's... Don't, don't blame the yellow son of Earth. For for his superpowers. Well, if Trump would have his way, he's an immigrant from another planet, and he wouldn't be here. Oh yeah, Superman, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, all those guys—they'd be screwed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know anything about those people you just mentioned. That means we need to hang out more. Clearly, <laughs> I, I've never been a comic book guy as far back as I can go. The only thing I've ever read, and I read it pretty religiously when I was a kid, was Cracked and Mad Magazine. I used to love those. Yeah, I, I still love Spy versus Spy. Oh yeah. Love it, and the, and the pages, the back that you could fold the, the to make uh, to make a picture. Absolutely. All right, Christian Picciolini. Uh, oh, the food was awesome, right? It was very good. You, you still have a piece of shrimp. It's yours. Have no, it. I don't want it. Take okay, it. I'll take it. I'll take it. The food's so good here. Lawrence's says fisheries, and it's cheap. It is cheap. Um, frog legs. Bring them home if you want them. I highly recommend the clam strips next time. That sounds good too. They've got like crab cakes. They've got catfish and tilapia. All kinds of. It's a, it's a fishery, yeah. true to its name. Uh, Christian, thank you so much. My pleasure, James. Thanks for having me.